0: Hello, people of the world, and welcome to today's episode of the Unity Project Podcast. If you are just tuning in for the first time, the Unity Project Podcast is about the relationships that we have with our bodies. I am so excited for today's episode. The person I interviewed today was the very, very first person that ever asked me to be on his podcast. It was the first podcast I had ever been interviewed on, and I was so unbelievably nervous. Oh my gosh. But I was so excited because I knew I wanted to do podcast stuff as well someday. Today I got to interview Matthias Roberts, who, if you guys are into podcast world, which if you're listening to this, then I would assume you are but if you are, you might have heard of the podcast Queerology. That is a podcast about faith and sexuality and what people's experiences with that are. That podcast has been incredibly helpful to me, and I am so honored that Matthias was open to being interviewed on mine because he helped me so much putting together all the open ends and figuring out how to make all this work. So I'm really stoked Today we talk about his experience with faith and sexuality, and we talk a lot about sexual shame and what that does to our brains. Matthias is a therapist as well, so it was really fun to get to hear his take on the brain and relationships and people and shame coming from that perspective. So, yeah, I hope you guys enjoy. If you are interested in... Looking further into these topics, I put a lot of resources in the description box of the podcast. So if you are struggling at all with your sexuality and your faith and you don't know how to reconcile that, I have been where you are. I get a lot of messages with that kind of question and I absolutely feel for you because that's a really scary journey, especially when you feel like you're on it by yourself. So I've put a ton of resources in the description box. So feel free to check those out and don't be afraid to send me a DM if you want to chat further and I'll try my best to get back to you. But anyway, I hope you enjoy this podcast and I will see you soon. If you guys are enjoying listening to the Unity Project podcast and you want to support me as a podcaster, a writer any of the things. If you want to become a part of the Unity Project podcast, then go to patreon.com slash That is where you can support me for as little as $1 a month. That will help me make this podcast everything that I dream for it to be and write the books that I dream to write. And all the things, you guys, if you want to support me, go ahead and do that. Or if you want to read my story and find out how I got from there to here and and, any and all the things. You can read my book, Finding Home. You can pick up a copy of that at my website, www.jackiegranlund.com. Or (laughs) if you want to support me, but you cannot afford to financially, then leaving a review for this podcast is incredibly helpful. Anywhere that you listen to podcasts, just go down there, you don't have to say much just however you feel about it let me know that helps a lot more than i think a lot of people realize so yeah enjoy Matthias, how are you doing over there?
1: I am so well. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Absolutely. I was just laughing about how much of a full circle this is because your podcast, Queerology, was the first one I had ever been on. And now... It's the other way around.
1: <laughs> I love it. Oh my gosh, yeah, I love I love moments like that. So
0: <laughs> Oh, yeah. Before we start, I just want everyone to know that I owe Matthias all the biggest thank yous in the world cuz he was so helpful in getting me like the information and knowledge I needed to start off doing this podcast stuff and mm. he's just a very very kind human so i wanted to thank you one more time for that matthias
1: yeah absolutely yeah i love love helping people out with that so
0: amazing so Mm -hmm. matthias you're over you're in seattle right
1: Mm -hmm. yes
0: is it pretty nuts over there right now i know that the fires were just getting
1: yeah oh my gosh just been wild the last few few weeks um today actually all the smoke has come back not as bad as it was a few weeks ago but like it's back so you know we're in the we're in the thick of it so oh
0: gosh yeah okay well i will eventually be up there to visit yes. once all the world things go back to normal <laughs> <laughs> i come. love seattle so uh, i think i was there like exactly a year ago oh no way yeah it's so really? pretty yeah yeah
1: i love it well here.
0: Thank you so much for wanting to do this. I was just reading your book, Beyond Shame, and I'm so excited. You talk a lot about uh, sexual shame and sexuality and a lot of that tying into um, evangelism and purity culture and all the things. So I'm excited to talk about that and learn your story. Because like I said earlier, or I guess before we were recording, um, I don't feel like I know much of your story just because on Mm -hmm. your podcast, you're talking to everybody else.
1: Right, right, right.
0: Yeah, but I wanted to ask you to start off to describe the relationship that you have with your body.
1: Mm. Ooh, like like present day or formerly?
0: Um, tell me present day, and okay. then we'll kind of look back at. It formerly. Sure,
1: great. Yeah, present day. You know, I would say still a work in progress. and probably will be for for the for the remainder of my life. But present day, I, I would say that I am learning and a little bit further along the path of learning how to love my body and to actually trust my body. Um, so, and and we'll get into this, but, but I grew up in a world where like you do not trust your body. You do not trust your feelings. Um, and have, you know, spent a really long time undoing that and, and learning how to actually like, Trust like my body has wisdom, and um, I, I'm a therapist, and in and, and deeply believe that, that my body is actually like my best tool um, for for being a therapist and knowing um, other people. So, um, much better relationship with my body than than I had years ago, and and um, I say my body is wise. Uh, my body is good. Um, and and we're learning how to become friends. So, yeah, yeah,
0: that is that is awesome. When you say uh, that your body is your best tool to be mm-hmm. a therapist, what exactly do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, kind of kind of rooted in in um, a, a neurobiological reality of, of what are called mirror neurons um, that we all have, um, which are, are neurons that literally pick up. On um, what is happening in other people's bodies. Um, And and, uh, so, with the way that we are feeling in the presence of another person. Um, often gives us a lot of intuition into what is going on with that person. Um, and, and so working as a therapist, uh, trusting that, that my body is actually giving me a lot of information about what is happening for another person. And, and of course, it's not like necessarily the authority on that, but it's a pretty good guess. And so to use that as, um, as a tool... Um, like I said, it's, it's the best tool that I have to to know what is happening for another person um, within our relationship, but also within other relationships. Um, oh. Yeah, does does that make sense? I'm happy to go into more detail, but <laughs> yeah, no, that's
0: cool. I've actually heard my therapist talk about that mm-hmm. a long time ago, and was really interesting to me because it sounds similar to empathy, but I feel like it's more complicated than that.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so in the world of, of what's called interpersonal neurobiology, which which is a field of neurobiology, um, the the definition of of the mind, so not the brain, but the mind is um, An embodied and relational process that regulates the flow of energy and information Um, and and that part of embodied and relational means that our minds are not just ourselves but it's Mm -hmm. it's relational our minds contain who we are in relationship with who we are in the presence of at at any given time Um, and and there's an an energetic exchange Um, and I know that sounds somewhat woo-woo, um, <laughs> but like it, it, it's rooted in this this field of interpersonal neurobiology. It is a field of, study, of science that they're, that they're studying, and they can literally track um, uh, these these flows of, of energy and information between people. Um, so the, the way I do therapy is, is rooted deeply in that. Um,
0: wow. That's super cool. I'm like a total nerd when it comes to neuroscience stuff. I know. <laughs> Me too. So, you too, I can tell it's so fascinating. Like mm-hmm. when I read the the Body Keeps a Score. I'm assuming you've mm-hmm. read that book. Yes, I yes, was, yes. Oh, just mind blown. So good. Have you always been interested in this stuff?
1: No, I haven't. The, <laughs> I, I haven't. <laughs> um, no, I. So uh, people ask, "How did you become a therapist?" And, and in some ways, the answer is like. I, I'm not quite sure because uh, <laughs> when I was an undergrad, um, so I, I did my undergraduate work in in graphic design and photography, um, which was a world that I loved and, and still do love. But I, I literally um, found workarounds for every single psychology class that I was required to take for like kind of common core curriculum. Like there were different options and, and I shied away from psychology because I was just like, well, who would ever use that? Like, what's the point of learning about that? Which like, looking back, I'm like, okay, come on with that. It's like, graphic design in some ways is a psychological field, like <laughs> mm. <laughs> design and, and influencing people. But, but at the time I, I was like, I'm, I don't really have any interest in this. Like, what does this have to do with me? It has nothing to do with the world that I'm going to go into. Um, So, so it wasn't until I got to grad school and and I started doing a degree in theology um, that I stumbled across the field of psychology and was like, wait a second, there's actually really interesting stuff in this world. And it actually ties in a whole lot to my story, how I'm learning to understand myself, how I'm learning to understand other people. Like, maybe this actually might be worth studying and eventually, like moving into as a career <laughs> oh, wow. so here I am um, here But it you was are. a really, really roundabout way so
0: that's crazy so studying theology led you to psychology you're saying
1: mm-hmm. yeah yeah oh my gosh mm-hmm. so
0: many questions about that <laughs> wow well but before we get into that kind of stuff t- take me back to like young Matthias mm. like what was how did you grow up what was your relationship like with your body when you were young I know you mentioned you grew up in the Christian church. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What was that like?
1: Yeah. So so the, the way I kind of describe my upbringing is like, I, I would say my, my parents were like borderline fundamentalists. So not quite fundamentalists, but almost there. Um, and, and I think what what in some ways, quote unquote, saved them from being fundamentalists was, was that their theology... Um, was really rooted in, in this idea of grace. So that kind of kept them from this really hard lined dogmatism. But we were right there on the cusp of it. Like like they believed kind of all of these these really kind of strict evangelical teachings or, or fundamentalist teachings. Um it, it, and so I grew up in this world of where there was a really kind of black and white view of who's in, who's out, and, and clear instructions on how to get in if if you're out, but mm-hmm. also like how to how to fall out <laughs> if you're in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that was all fine and good until I started realizing that I was attracted to men, and that threw a wrench into things. Pretty quickly, um, mm. because I I knew somehow I don't I don't remember explicit teaching around this, but somehow I knew that that guys being attracted to guys was deeply wrong um, and deeply sinful. Um, but I also didn't know what I had done to make it happen to me, right? Like I like I believed like well, surely I must have chosen this somehow but I couldn't figure it out like, and I couldn't make it stop. And, and so it, it, it was this, I mean, for part of the language, it was a clusterfuck. Like, it just like, <laughs> I would, I was like begging God, like, please change me. and, and at that time it was kind of the height of, of all of these ex-gay ministries. So like focus on the family and Exodus International and
0: mm-hmm. and
1: all of these like Christian ministries that were that were proclaiming that you can change your sexual orientation and that sexual orientation change does work, which I mean, spoiler alert, it doesn't, but like at the time they were saying it does and and so all of that kind of got like mixed in with me my beliefs about my body um like like the sense of i can't trust my body and i have to actively work on changing my feelings or kind of more like what it really turned into was was just actively trying to suppress what was going on inside of my body um So it was not a good relationship. I I hated uh, my body because it felt like it was constantly betraying me because I couldn't control my attraction to men, no matter what I tried. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That makes a lot of sense. I hear a lot of people talk about like growing up, and I had this experience myself, because for those listening, I came out as bisexual a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. And I grew up with like very homophobic parents and like also in church culture. But um, what I've heard talked about a lot that I relate to is like having this like internalized homophobia that we have to like get rid of from ourselves, Right. And that does so much like how you worded it about its relationship or about its effect on the relationship you had with your body makes a lot of sense like you just don't trust yourself right right and it's like your body's betraying you how old were you when you realized you liked men
1: uh i was like 10 or 11.
0: okay i remember reading uh, like the beginning of your book you were telling the story about how uh, your mom would tell you to cover your eyes whenever you walked through like the underwear and bra section and like like yes. a Victoria's Secret type thing. Uh-huh, uh-huh. What was what was that experience like?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's one of my earliest memories. Like when I when I started working on this book, I was trying to think like, what were some of the earliest messages I got around sex and sexuality, or at least adjacent messages to that? And what I came up with was was these stories of, of my mom literally saying like like Don't look, cover your eyes." Um, Anytime women came on TV or, like, there was a Victoria's Secret billboard or we were in the mall and walking by Victoria's Secret, like, like this very much, like, don't look at that. Um, and, and on one hand, like, I mean, I think that was a, a common thing at that time. Like, my mom wasn't the only one <laughs> saying yeah. that. Like, so many moms were saying that to their sons. And and there's a level of, of kind of wanting to kind of protect your kids from from sexualization, which... Absolutely. It makes sense. Like age development or age appropriate development, but, but what it turned into and and what it really was, was, was a sense of what my mom was teaching me to do was having a a classic shame response. Like shame, we know within our bodies, within our neurology, it makes us turn away um, involuntarily. Uh, when we feel shame, we, we turn away. And, and there are some studies that show that like people who are feeling shame will like involuntarily look towards a nearest exit or look down or kind of look for an escape. Um, it's a turning away. And so my very earliest messages around arousal, or what my mom was assuming at least I would be aroused to, was you have to turn away from this. Um, this is not good for you to experience. Um, And it wasn't until I started finding the underwear aisles, (laughs) men's underwear aisles, that it started hitting me like, oh, I think these are the feelings that my mom is trying to keep me from feeling. Like, these are the bad feelings. Um, And it was kind of this double realization in some ways of like, oh, these are the bad feelings. And then right on the heels, like, oh, but these aren't even the right kind of bad feelings. Like, there must be something really wrong with me
0: oh wow that must have felt so scary especially like because had you heard anything about what being gay meant or anything anything no. about that no
1: not really I mean the the closest thing I remember is like seeing a gay couple on tv and, and hearing my mom scoff like that, that's about it
0: oh wow <laughs> but, yeah wow so did you think you were just like the only one of the, like, just had no idea what was going on then.
1: Yes. In some ways, yes. I, I was like, yeah. I, I mean, I had no idea how actually common it was. Yeah. <laughs> like, I was like, oh, this is a deep, dark secret. No one can find out.
0: Yeah. yeah. Wow. And you were saying before that that um, made you not trust yourself. What did what did mm-hmm. that look like? Kind of growing up. Like what did the shame look like in your life?
1: Yeah, it it was. I mean, the shame manifested in in trying to keep things a secret. Um, like this this idea that if anyone were to find out, like what would what will they do to me? Um, I literally thought like I would get cast out or physically beaten. Um, like my, my parents weren't abusive in that way by by any means. Um, but there was a sense though, like this is bad enough. And also like looking in the Bible and seeing, you know, verses like in Leviticus that <laughs> that mm-hmm. queer people should be stoned. Like at reading enough of that had me worried like, oh, what will happen to me? Like, yeah. will they kick me out? Will I lose my parents? Um, will they love me? Um, and, and so all of that, I mean, manifested in the shame of I have to keep this hidden. So, you know, it meant paying super close attention to the way that I walked um, because people would tell me like, oh, you walk like a girl. Um, Mm -hmm. Or the way I talked or the way I used my hands. Like all of this effort went into presenting myself in a way that that tried to mimic what other guys were like. Um, And... You know, I thought I did an okay job, but it. it turns out later, like my aunt was like, No, we all knew this.
0: Oh wow! <laughs> and I was like, But I'm an actor. Like <laughs> I did so good. I'm sure you did great Matthias. I would I would not have known. <laughs> I,
1: who knows? Who but knows? <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, keeping it hidden and being so scared, so scared of what would happen if people found out.
0: Wow. Oh my goodness that just feels so scary to me. I'm like remembering what that felt like in mm-hmm. these moments of shame and so in your book you were talking about the different ways that people kind of cope with shame and mm-hmm. one of them is like or do you want to do you want to explain what those different sure. words are? I think there were like 3 of them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, so so I mean my, my book is 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 all about how we how we work with sexual shame, um, and, and uh, kind of kind of rooted in this idea of, of kind of religious based sexual shame. For those of us who grew up in purity culture, whether we were straight or not, um, the kind of source of that shame is very similar. Um, and, and so, in the book, I, I kind of talk about three different ways that we cope with, with sexual shame, like our coping mechanisms, and. Um, like you said, there are three of them. The first one is is shamefulness. Um, uh, and that's when we use our shame to control our sexuality. Uh, so, so that's kind of like what my childhood was. At. shame was so present, so strong. Um, and it was an effective way, um, to, to, to literally like stuff down my sexuality. um, the, the, the second one is, is shamelessness. Uh, and, and that's when we use our sexuality to control our shame. So for, for a lot of folks, uh, kind of when we leave a repressive world, um, when, when we leave maybe a faith or a faith community at least, um, we kind of are so tired of feeling sexual shame that, that we kind of hit the, the, am I, do you mind if I swear? I don't. Oh no, not okay, at all. Okay. Okay. Great. <laughs> you're You're um, <good. laughs> <laughs> but we kind of hit the fuck it button, um, <laughs> like in some ways quite literally, like, and just like the, the, I'm going to do whatever I want. Like I'm so tired of feeling the shame, um, that I am just going to go live my life. Um, I'm going to cast off all these rules and just go do what I want. Um, not necessarily a bad thing. Like in some ways, we're, we may be trying on new values or new ways of trying to live out our sexuality. Um, but but where we kind of run into trouble is is when we're using our sexuality to control our shame. Mm-hmm. We haven't actually done the work on our shame um, to to live from a place of, of groundedness and rooting in our values. Um, so so that's the second one, shamelessness. And then the third one is autopilot. Uh, and and that's for for those of us who have um who maybe didn't grow up in a super like purity culture based world or we've maybe done a lot of work around our sexuality already, um of where we where shame really isn't a driving or motivating factor. But every once in a while, like say we hook up with someone or we have a sexual experience or just out of the blue, shame kind of jumps in and, and we either experience it really intensely or maybe not super intensely, but, but this kind of like, Oh yeah, I was going to work with that. Um, but it's fleeting enough that, that we don't. And, and so we haven't exactly worked with the shame. We're just kind of living on autopilot with the like, Oh yeah, I'm going to figure that out at some point. Um, but haven't actually done, done that work to figure out what our values are, figure out what we believe, how we want to, how we want to be in the world. Um, so, so those are the three coping mechanisms. Um,
0: okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, the way you were talking about shame, it just, it felt so, it felt so real to me. Because I've always known shame, I mean, as for so many people, shame has been such a huge theme in my life in so many different scenarios. And just reading your words kind of made me feel really validated in that and just like <laughs> how it, the role it plays in your life and the toll it takes on your relationship with yourself and your body and how it looks like different things for different people but it's really like the same Mm root so Mm -hmm. that was that was very cool so you coped with it through the first strategy you're saying shamefulness
1: yeah yeah I mean primarily my at least in my my childhood that was (laughs) that was the coping mechanism yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. oh
0: man well I want to I want to talk more about what um kind of what that looked like later on and yeah. how you got to where you are now. But before I jump into that, uh, there was a part in your book where you talked about um, uh, patriarchy. I mm-hmm. forgot what the chapter was called. I think it was like God invented patriarchy or something like yeah. that.
1: Yeah, the lie.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. yes. I was super interested by that because I talk about that a lot with, um, with women. And mm-hmm. I don't know if I've ever had a conversation with it hearing like, a man's point of view on it, growing up in that, and kind of what your experience was, and how that affected your relationship with yourself and with women. And I would love to hear more of like your thoughts on that.
1: Totally. Yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, that chapter it, it, it sits in in kind of the section in the book where I'm talking about different lies that I was taught about about sex and sexuality, and in I mean, there are three of them, like one or three major ones, at least there's so many, <laughs> but, but one of them is, um is, is this lie that, that God invented patriarchy um and, and that like the, this God given family order is a, is a patriarchal family order, which is just not true. Um, and, and, but I was raised so firmly in this world of, um, men are the leader of the household, of households. Women can't be pastors. Women have these, these very strong roles, gender roles, like even to the point of, of like, um, of like women shouldn't be working outside of the home. Like I was homeschooled. Like that's kind of the world I grew up in. Um, and and so I was like enculturated in this world in some ways, um, well not in some ways, in, in all ways to believe like my role as a man is to be the head of a household, to be the natural protector of women, um, and so on and so forth. Um, was just saying that makes me feel ugh, so icky, um but I also watched my sisters being taught all these things of, of in some ways, like, like it's their job to manage the desire and expectation of men through the ways that they dress and the way that they act. Um, I mean, very much what we would call rape culture at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, this idea that it is a woman's responsibility. Um, and if something happens, it's her fault. Um, and, and, um, realizing that i was gay i think gave me some some perspective of course i couldn't see outside of that world but there was something about it that was like this doesn't seem right like it, if i'm attracted to men and if i can walk into a locker room and fully control my sexuality right like i'm not off like having sex because like (laughs) yeah couldn't happen right
0: like
1: (laughs) like if i can do that then why can't other men do that in the presence of women like why is it their job Mm. when like i'm doing a pretty good job over here in the men's locker room like it it just didn't add up to me um And I I think as I continue to see that play out, like, like there's this level of patriarchy, um, that in some ways remains unquestioned. Like even in gay male culture, this is something that's so interesting to me because in gay male culture, there are so few women, um, like, we have our best friends or whatever. But, like, there's so few women. Like, patriarchy even kind of flows unchecked in some ways. Um I, That's a whole nother topic, probably. But, like, it's so damaging. Mm. So messed up.
0: Yeah. I've never heard that been talked about before. Do you have, a, like, a—I don't know if it's possible, but, like, a, a brief way of kind of explaining what you mean by that?
1: Yeah. Um— as far as, like, gay male culture, is that what you're referring to?
0: Yeah, like patriarchy yeah. in that mm-hmm. world.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, in some ways it's explicit, in other ways it's not. So, so for example, um, gay white men married um, are in some of the highest income brackets in, in existence um, because you have two white men together as a household, right? Uh-huh. Um, and, and, and so, like you're getting all the benefits of of patriarchy and of course there's homophobia like i don't want to like negate that um mm-hmm. but you're also getting the benefits of being white being a man um in a patriarchal world uh, 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 and you don't have women um around so so it's common in in my world at least to in some ways you use disgust to, to talk about women, such as like, we don't talk about vaginas. We don't talk about breasts. Like all of these things were kind of like, ew, gross. When, mm-hmm. I mean, that's patriarchy. Um, we, we film it in disgust, um, but that disgust is there because of, of patriarchy. Um, we say, well, I'm not attracted to that. Sure. But that doesn't mean it's gross. Yeah. Um, and it, so in some ways is subtle, subtle, in some ways it's explicit. Um, but it's very present, <laughs> mm-hmm. if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Oh, my goodness. That makes a lot of sense now that it, you explain it that way because it's like, I don't know, with a with like a straight couple, like the men are still trying to like impress the women in a way or like get the woman's attention in a way. But then right. when you take that out of the equation, that makes sense that there'd be so much more room for just different forms of patriarchy or different forms of like um, sexism or – right. Anything like that, so that makes a lot of sense. That's a good thing, I think, to talk about and to be aware of, because I've never heard that talked about before. Um, yeah, so so tell me more about kind of what it looked like as you grew up a bit and started to question, started to question the things that you were being taught, and started to realize that, like, I, I'm assuming you had a deconstruction phase. Mm -hmm. Um, because I know like the then now from you telling me, and then I know where you're at now. So I'm like, how did that happen? Where was the bridge there?
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I, um, I went to undergrad at a small conservative Christian school in Arkansas. Uh, and my freshman year, uh, literally went in for conversion therapy. Um, like my my, my mom had like, of course, this was this was still kind of at the height of conversion therapy. So there, were, I, I, I had been growing up with all of these stories of, you can change this. Um, and there's therapy out there for this. And, and my parents telling me, like, we can get you a therapist. And I, I never wanted to see a therapist. And thankfully, my parents didn't force me. Um, but I finally hit a level, in some ways, of almost desperation when I was an undergrad of, like, I need to get a handle on this. I, I thought like, I need to get a handle on this. I need to change this. So my school had a counseling center. Um, I went and did an intake and literally asked. I was like, I want to change my sexual orientation. Like my goal for therapy is to change, to, to be straight. I want to be straight. Um, I, I I still consider this to be the grace of God because I I just don't know what else it would be because, like, all the cards were stacked against me, conservative Christian school in Arkansas, going in for conversion therapy. Somehow I get a therapist who has a level of experience in this world, and in our first session he says to me, Matthias, um, sexual orientation doesn't change. Um, And so, you know, our work together is going to be how do you live as a faithful Christ follower because still a Christian therapist um, but how do you live as a faithful Christ follower with that being a reality um, that that you will most likely be same-sex attracted <laughs> for the mm-hmm. rest of your life um, he also told me Matthias, you didn't choose this nothing you there's nothing that you chose about this this is part of who you are. That was the first time I heard either one of those things. Um, so it was like this huge weight off my shoulder. Like like it felt true in some ways. Of like I had been trying to change this since, since I was 10. And oh. it, it had not ever worked. It, it, and so to hear like, oh, this is probably something you're going to live with for the rest of your life. Like in some ways I was like, well, fuck. Like I don't, I don't want that. But in other ways I was like, that feels... True in my bones. Mm-hmm. Um, this is part of who I am, and I didn't choose it. Um, so that started me on this journey of learning how to accept myself, and you know, went through kind of a, a, a celibacy phase because uh, uh, you know, that was a world I was in. Like, kind of, it's okay to be gay as long as you don't act on it. Um, I believed that I bought into that um, for years and then eventually started hearing stories of there are other people out there who believe that it's okay. Like that gay relationships are okay. And they're still calling themselves Christians. Like Mm. what? (laughs) Yeah. And I started reading those stories and I started diving into, into the theology and it took me years, but eventually got to a point where I was comfortable saying like, Oh, like, actually, queer relationships are beautiful things. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. Like, it,
0: it took oh, so long.
1: But I got there. I got there. Mm.
0: I have, like, a handful of questions for you. <laughs> Let me mm-hmm. start them out in my brain. Mm-hmm. Um, so you mentioned that your mom... Uh, or when did you trying to remember how exactly you said this but you were saying that your parents were telling you that you can go to change your orientation like they were kind of telling you that
1: Mm -hmm. yeah Uh,
0: so you at one point I'm assuming came out to them and it like was not okay right right okay
1: yeah yeah I mean very briefly like I came out to them when I was 15 um and they weren't they didn't kick me out um, I think they did the best that they could at that, at that point. Um, they were fairly loving, I mean, very loving. Um, but it was also this, you know, this, this sense of like, this is not okay. We need to do something about this. Um,
0: mm-hmm. so yeah, yeah. They. That makes sense. Yeah. When this therapist said that to you about it, not being your choice and about you not being able to change your sexual orientation, was there a part of you that kind of felt hopeful? Like had you heard of other um, theologies out there or other views or opinions or whatnot previously or not until later down the road when you started to talk about it?
1: I knew of one person. Um, who was gay and in a relationship, and and that she, this is the language that I would have used then, like she claimed to be a Christian. Um, I didn't believe her. Like, I mean, that did not fit into my belief system at all. (laughs) And I was like, "Mm, no, you're not. Like, (laughs) (laughs) but she she was the only person in my life that that even kind of dared to have another idea of like, she was like, no, like I'm I'm a Christian. And I'm gay, and like that's not a problem. Um, uh, it wasn't until later that I that I ran across. I mean, at that point, like I mean, this I mean, this was only this was like less than ten years ago. But at that point, like we're today, we have so many resources. Like there are so many resources out there around mm-hmm. faith and, and sexual orientation. Back then, even though it wasn't that long ago, there was nothing. There were like a few self-published books, and then my my senior year of college was when when Justin Lee, who who had founded the Gay Christian Network, um, that was when his book came out, um, and that book was a game changer. That but that was still pre like Matthew Vines, who wrote God in the Gay Christian, which caused major waves. Like it, it, none of that had happened yet, so. So when I was like researching and started doing like research around like what else do other people believe, it was like deep googling.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, I can imagine. Wow. <laughs>
1: yeah, it, it was like
0: not professional googling, <laughs> not amateur googling. Professional. Right. <laughs> Damn, Matthias, that sounds yeah. intense. Because like I only just started doing this work a couple of years ago, and. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so scary even two years ago. Like, I, it was right. so scary because when you're in the world that, like, says that that's not okay, mm-hmm. it feels like everybody says it's not okay. It feels like there right. just can't be anyone who thinks other than this. And if there isn't, they're wrong. And, like, I can't even, like, go into that. Like, like I remember, I think I talked about this a little bit on your on your podcast but when Mm -hmm. my my sister came out I like was so scared because I'm like no I've been avoiding this conversation because I'm scared of it but now I like I have to look into it right because oh my goodness it's just so scary on like the outside of it not knowing what's out there but then it took me I remember I read the book Unclobbered have you read that one
1: yeah Colby's book yeah
0: yeah that was the first one that I was like oh Okay, cool. So there's something else out there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What what was that experience like for you like doing all that work and like what was do you remember the first thing you found back then? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I stumbled across there was this little Metropolitan Community Church which is like a LGBTQ denomination. Um and oh, I can't even remember his name right now. I w- I wish I would. Jack something, I think maybe, um, but a pastor in that denomination had written a book called like, Let the Children Be Free or Let the People Be Free or something, and, like self-published. Um, and, and that was the first ever affirming theology that I had read. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was bullshit. Like I was like, this is so liberal. Like this is so uh, like, no, this is not the way God works. This is not the way I read the Bible, but it, but it was intriguing. And so I started listening to his sermons, and it was listening to his sermons that I was like, "Wait, this guy prays like his prayers sound the same as my pastor's prayers. Like, there's, there's, they're not like, I don't know what I was expecting, but they're not like <laughs> homosexual prayers. So <laughs> like, <they're> like <laughs> he's like he's like praying, and I was like, hmm, he oh actually seems gosh. pretty normal. <laughs> like, and, and that started messing with my categories. Um. But it wasn't until Justin Lee's book, Torn, um, that his story was close enough to my story. He grew up Southern Baptist in, in a pretty conservative world, and the way he read the Bible was similar to how I read the Bible at that point. Like, those things started lining up, and and it was his book that for the first time ever, I so distinctly remember reading it, and then going on a walk with my best friend Um after reading that book and he was kind of asking me about it and I was telling him about it who I mean at the time he was the only like one of the only people I was out to um and I remember walking down that road with him the sun was setting and crying because it was the first time I had ever let myself imagine that I could actually be in a relationship
0: oh well that makes me want to cry right now <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
0: That's such a huge thing.
1: Oh, it's huge.
0: That's so huge because it's like relationship is like, it's life. Like life yes. is relationship. And the idea right. that you can't have that because it doesn't align with some version of theology out there and everyone mm-hmm. else can, but you can't. Like that's right. so sad and scary. Yeah. And so that moment I can just imagine must have been, oh, it must have been everything.
1: Right. It was huge. Wow.
0: Was it? Did it take a lot of work after reading that book to get to a place to where you started being comfortable in that world? Or was it pretty yeah. fast moving?
1: No, it took me another probably almost four years, three or four years um, after that. Because, like, there was the hope. But, like, I I felt like I had to have an airtight enough argument that I could convince my dad. Um, mm. My dad... The way he reads the Bible is just such a literal kind of view of Scripture um, that I thought, and if and I thought if I can't convince my dad, then it can't be, then it's not true. Um, and so, in some ways, I mean, I was reading all of this theology, and, and more books were being published, and and eventually, what did it was 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 this New Testament. Scholar published a book called "Bible Gender Sexuality." Um, his name is James Brownson, and it's a seminary level analysis <laughs> of wow. scripture. From a he, he worked for a rather reformed school who who had a very high view of scripture that that tracked with how I th- viewed scripture at that point. Mm. Um, it was that book plus the combination of arguing with my dad enough to realize like, oh, he's never going to change. That finally made that flip of like, okay, there's enough scholarship out here that feels like it's solid enough to stand on um, that I feel like it's okay for me to be in a relationship. And, you know, now, like, I don't even think about the Bible that way. Um, But at that point, I mean, it took, three, four years of like intense reading of like, I wasn't theologically trained, like (laughs) reading (laughs) seminary level texts that were going way over my head. But I felt like I had to have this argument in order for my existence to be okay. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Oh
0: gosh. That just makes me think of like all the times when, I don't know. I've heard so many people say, and I love saying this too, and it's like, no one has done more work in this area than someone who like believes their salvation depends on it and this is just proof of that like oh yeah so much work Mm -hmm. so much work that what was that book called that you said
1: it's called bible gender sexuality
0: okay bible gender sexuality it's great it's a great book (laughs) it sounds like a big book i'm assuming it's thick and hardcover
1: (laughs) it's quite dense yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah, but
0: (laughs) oh my goodness well that that sounds like an intense four years um, so how did you get from there to like wanting to be or wanting to do queerology like yeah, I'm assuming that was way down the line
1: it was yeah, yeah um so after I realized that i after I became affirming um I, I, in some ways had been, had been blogging kind of all through that journey. Um, and so I had come out on my blog and, and when I came out, I, I had this, I came out in such a way of like, well, I'm, I'm celibate though. So like, I'm living the correct lifestyle, (laughs) (laughs) um, and and so I kind of, in some ways, blogged my way through becoming affirming, although I never made like an official I'm, I'm affirming announcement. Um, but that's what led me to going to grad school and, and wanting to, you know, formally study theology and get a master's degree in, in theology and culture. Um, and it was as I was in grad school and as my world was expanding, um, I, because I was blogging, I was meeting, you know, going to all of these queer faith conferences and meeting all these people and, and, um, I took a little break from blogging for a while and, you know, blogs were going out of style (laughs) and (laughs) as I started considering like, well, what do I want this to look like next? Like, I, I don't think I want to be a blogger anymore. Um, friends kept saying, well, what about a podcast? Like, you know, all these really cool people, um, and there aren't, you know, there aren't really any podcasts in this sphere. Like there was one other person that I knew of, there may have been others, but that I knew of, there was one other person that was doing a podcast in, in, in this sphere. Um, my friend, Kevin Garcia, who many people may have heard of. Um, Kevin Garcia. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it was Kevin's podcast. And I was like, well, I don't want to like encroach on Kevin's space, but Kevin was like, no, like dude, start a podcast. And I'm like, okay, so that's <laughs> okay. that's that's how I started queerology. Um and, and really wanted to focus in on this question of for those of us who have moved beyond the is this okay question that who've done kind of the, the theological work to realize like no, it's it's fine. Like you can be a queer person of faith. Um what does it look like to live beyond that? Like, mm. how do we actually live our lives? Um, what are people doing? Cause there are so many people out there who are queer people who identify as being of faith in one way or another. It may look massively different than like what I was raised with. Um, but who are doing such cool things in the world. And, and yeah. that's kind of the point of queerology is like faith is an element. Sure. But like, there's so much more to life. Yeah. Um, Oh. That
0: is so cool. What do you think, like, the biggest—or you might have actually answered this question just now, but what is, like, the biggest thing you feel like you've learned from hosting Queerology and, and talking to all the people that you have?
1: Mm. I think I'm constantly struck by the level of of, of openness to, to faith and spirituality in, in the queer world. Um, I, I think, you know, growing up, and I think this is still a common narrative in, in some circles, even in the queer circle is that it's one or the other. You can either be a person of faith. You can either be spiritual or queer. Um, and I have yet to find a queer person. I'm sure they're out there. I have yet to find a queer person who is like openly hostile to, spirituality to faith. They might be hostile to certain expressions of it, but I I think that constantly surprises me. Even as I like start talking to people who have, you know, made careers out of being queer or like super like big names, the level of willingness to talk about spirituality, to talk about faith and and in some ways hearing like, no one is having these conversations um Mm. we need to be talking about what it looks like to be queer people of faith um whatever faith means um that's something that i'm constantly surprised by and i'm learning about like we want to have these conversations or many people want to have these conversations um because they're intersections like there, there was a study done in 2008 that that, that showed like 83 percent of LGBTQ people grew up in in faith based homes, um, mm-hmm. which is more than um, the general population. Um, wow, which is so weird. Um, yeah, that's <laughs> very weird.
0: <laughs> it's really, really right? funny. <laughs> I
1: know, isn't that wild? Oh like, man,
0: I want I, everyone I, to know that.
1: Right, I know. Like and. And so, in some ways, like faith, even though it may look very, very different, is kind of in our in our bones, yeah, um and people enjoy talking about it. It seems
0: what do you think that says about queerness in general?
1: Mm. yeah, I you know, there's a theologian by the name of Elizabeth Edmund who wrote a book called Queer Virtue." Um, and she argues in that book, I I don't think she's the first person to argue this, but she, she makes a very compelling argument that there is something about queerness that, that, um, is like an attribute of God. Um, like, like she argues if, if queerness is a breaking of boundaries or an unboxing, um, a, a kind of movement outside of of, of lines and, and boundaries. Um, if, if that's what queerness is, um, then like that's what God is. Um, God breaks boundaries. We can't define God. God is queer. And, And so being queer gives us a unique perspective on the divine on God. Um, because we're part of that, that kind of flowing energy. So here I am sounding woo-woo again, but like (laughs) I deeply, I deeply believe that um, there's something inherently spiritual, I think uh, about queerness.
0: Mm. Oh my goodness. I just feel like I got chills. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I love that Mm -hmm. so much. Mm -hmm. So, so much. I mean, that just makes me think of all the stuff that like I've learned about God or about the Bible post coming out because of that work and because of like like what it means for, and this could go on a rabbit trail of things, but for God to not be a he, right. for God to not have a gender. And then it's like, well, what does gender even mean? And why does everybody think, I just, there's so many things that I feel like just in my own journey, I've come to learn and come to experience in spirituality and in faith and in God and in just life that I don't think I would have found without, without, queerness and talking Mm -hmm. to people in the LGBTQ community and stuff. And it's just, I don't know. I mean, that like, there's just no conversations that compare to those, which is, it's so special. And I love, I love that you get to talk about all that on your podcast. So for everybody out there Mm. listening, Matthias, if you have not figured out by now, hosts a podcast called Queerology. (laughs) Um, All that, I meant to... To say this at the end, but I'm just gonna say there it right now anyway. <laughs> all that's in the links below and I will again say this at the end. But anyway, um Matthias, your story is so special. It's mm. super special. And I didn't even know um when I started listening to your podcast, uh I didn't know you were a therapist. I think I found out you were a therapist when we did uh when you interviewed me on there because we talked a little yeah. bit before or after or something like that. Right, right. And I think that that like I mean, I love therapy. I'm, like, the biggest, mm. biggest advocate for therapy. So I just want to ask you one more question. Well, Great. two more, but one of them doesn't really count. <laughs> um, <Okay>. So <laughs> this one is similar to the last one, but what do you feel like – because, like, you have such a unique perspective and, like, posture towards just humanity because you, mm. you're, like, the listening ear to so many people's personal, personal stories. Like, you have such a – I don't even know how to say it. Like, I want to say it's like like a privilege to just like hear like the inside heart of yeah. so many people. Yeah. That I feel like you probably learn so much with that combined with the conversations that you have on on queerology. Like, what would you say you learn the most about people when like through being a therapist? Mm-hmm. I mean,
1: there are many things coming to mind, um, so I'll try to kind of weave them together in some ways. But I mean, it, and I'm going to steal this from Brene Brown because I can I can't do an interview without mentioning Brene Brown. It seems like Thank
0: um, you. <laughs> please mention I Brene. I just Brown.
1: love her. But love in her. in her book Rising Strong, I mean, she she dedicates a, a good chunk of that book to talking about how you know, as people, all of us are doing the best that we can. Um, and, and in holding that posture towards people of almost as a spiritual practice, um, uh, is, is asking this question, what if they are doing the best that they can? What if this person I'm in conflict with, or what if this person I'm arguing with on Facebook, whatever is doing the best that they can. And I think, you know, bearing witness to deepest, darkest secrets, um or or hearing about people's traumas or you know whatever it is they're bringing into therapy um i have yet to find that be untrue mm. um and <laughs> some of us are are handed a deck of cards that we have to figure out what to do with and it can be super shitty sometimes and we're trying to live our lives um they're trying to live their lives and are doing the best with what they've been given um I I deeply believe that um so so I hope for myself um there are times that this isn't true but I, I hope for myself that as I continue to do this work and continue to be a person in this world that that that, that you know, expands my level of compassion um both for other people but also for myself. Um mm. because I mean I also deeply believe like like we we can't be compassionate towards others unless we're compassionate for ourselves. Like if we're only compassionate for other people, but we can't extend that towards ourselves, that's not actually compassion. Um we can only go with other people as far as we've been able to go ourselves um, wow yeah um
0: yeah that is the most important thing i feel like i have heard in a really long time mm-hmm. it's so it's so everything and that kind of just ties honestly everything that we've been talking about together like just the relationship you have with yourself like your body but just yourself in general and how you treat yourself and that's really really cool that Being a therapist and having these conversations on queerology and just just living your life and everything you've experienced has brought you to that. That's a really that's a hard and really important way to live life. Yeah. Well, Matthias, thank you so much for sharing all of these things. I'm so honored to get to hear your story and to just ask you questions. I feel like we were just sitting having coffee for the I past hour.
1: Yes, that's how I feel too. Yes. yes.
0: this was such a fun conversation. I, I have mm. one more thing to ask you, which is slightly off topic. Great. Um, are you ready for it?
1: I, sh- I mean, I'll ready <laughs> as I can be. Yes, yes.
0: Okay. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm winging this, so we're going to see Great. what happens. I yes. have not thought of what I was going to ask yet. Cool. Would you rather have to wear a Bright yellow shoes every single day, no matter where you went. They're very cool shoes. They're not the most comfortable. Like you like them, but they're just like you really stand out with these shoes every single place that you go. You have to sleep in the shoes. You can't take them off.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: Or would you rather your transportation everywhere be on a, a Razor scooter that doesn't go super fast? And it hits your ankles like all those ninety kids talk about. Oh! <laughs> but it looks cool, and it's like you're riding a razor scooter. But it's everywhere.
1: So it's either sleeping in shoes or yeah. or traveling everywhere by scooter. Yes. Uh, okay, Jackie.
0: Um, <laughs> okay. <nice>. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Jackie. I love that. <laughs>
1: Uh, Limited options here. I guess I would go with with scooter. I think I would. I think I would choose the scooter. I do.
0: Why? Would I? I don't know.
1: Uh, All transportation. Can I bring the scooter into a car with me?
0: Yes. Just if you were like walking, like anywhere you would walk, you would have to scooter.
1: I think I would choose scooter.
0: Yeah. Okay. I respect mm-hmm. that. You really don't want to wear the yellow shoes.
1: I really I don't want to sleep in the shoes specifically. I don't want to bring those shoes into my bed with me.
0: Okay. Yeah. That's yeah. fair. You're gonna mm-hmm. get all the stuff from the day in your bed. I yep. Yep. I get that. I think I would do the scooter as well. Yeah.
1: I mean <laughs> that's those are two hard choices.
0: <laughs> those are two very hard choices. I used to plan out my would you rather questions, and then I found it so much more fun to just like open my mouth and see what happens i love that
1: i love it oh
0: my god it's so it's so much fun because i surprise myself of what i'm gonna ask and i'm like wait what um but dude matthias you are an absolute rock star how can Mm. people find you your podcast your book all the things
1: yeah yeah so i am across the internet social media at matthias roberts so matthiasroberts.com or at matthias roberts twitter instagram facebook it's matthias with two t's and an h um, and then my book, you can buy wherever you buy books. Um, I like to point people towards bookshop.org, um, because it's, it works just as easily as those big online stores, but supports the local bookstores. So, bookshop.org. Hmm. Um, and then my podcast, um, again, you can get Queerology wherever you listen to, sh- to podcasts. So... Okay. We're now on, I mean, speaking of the, the big stores, we're, we're now on Amazon too. So you can just ask Alexa if, if you have an Alexa.
0: No way. Wait, queer, yeah. the podcast is on Amazon? Yeah. That's so cool.
1: Yeah, that's fun. I just got an email about it last week. Oh my
0: gosh. (laughs) Congratulations. I'm so excited. I mean, I don't know that it
1: means much, but
0: like, (laughs) it's like like really cool. (laughs) That's like a a milestone. Sure. Yeah. Sure. You're like, yeah, whatever. Okay. (laughs) You and your scooter are going to have a great time. Oh my gosh. I love that. I love that. Well, thank you for all the work that you do. Thank you for being you and being the kind, amazing person that you are, Matthias. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate you spending the last hour answering my millions of questions.
1: Mm, Thank you so much. This has been a blast. Yeah. Thank you, Jackie.
0: Awesome. Okay. I will talk to you later.
1: Yeah. Bye. Bye.